Hey, Gordo, why don't you tell us a story? Uh, I don't know. Oh, come on. Yeah, come on, Gordo. Not one of your horror stories, okay? I don't want to hear no horror stories. I'm not up for that, man. Welcome to Now Playing's Different Seasons Retrospective Series. Put your trust in the Lord. Your ass belongs to me. Welcome to Shawshank. Part of the Now Playing Stephen King movie series. You'd have to be brilliant. Can you do that? I know I can. Join Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob as they review the film adaptations from Stephen King's 1982 collection, The Shawshank Redemption. In 1966, Andy Dufresne escaped from Shawshank Prison. All they found of him was a muddy set of prison clothes and an old rock hammer. I remember thinking it would take a man 600 years to tunnel through the wall with it. Old Andy did it in less than 20. Apt pupil. He wanted to know everything. That was how he put it, yes. Everything. And stand by me. I was 12 going on 13 the first time I saw a dead human being. It happened in the summer of 1959, a long time ago. But only if you measure in terms of years. Join us at NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new installment of this series. And keep coming back as we continue to look at all the movies based on the writings of Stephen King. We talked into the night. The kind of talk that seemed important until you discover girls. And join Arnie at BooksAndNachos.com for in-depth reviews of all of Stephen King's books and short stories. Where do you get this shit? I read it. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. Rule number one, no blasphemy. I'll not have the Lord's name taken in vain in my prison. Listener discretion is advised. I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy living, or get busy dying. Today we're discussing... The Shawshank Redemption, starring Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, Bob Gunton, William Sadler, Clancy Brown, Gil Bellows, and James Whitmore, directed by Frank Darabont. This is the Now Playing co-host who, if I'm not institutionalized, I probably should be, Arnie. Stuart in LA. And this is the host that's crazy as a rat in a tin shit house, Jacob. Welcome back to Stephen King. I don't know that everyone thinks of Shawshank Redemption as being a Stephen King property, but he wrote three novellas that we're going to be covering in the next three weeks, Shawshank, Apt Pupil, and Stand By Me. It's so funny. I saw Stephen King speak a couple months ago in Nashville. Actually, amazing experience to see that man speak live. First time I ever did. And he told this story on stage about, you know, he he still lives in Maine in the summers. He lives in Florida in the winters now. And he was shopping at a grocery store in Florida and some woman came up to him on the rascal, you know, wheeled up to him and goes, I know who you are. You're the guy who writes those horrible stories. You're Stephen King. And King's like, yes, can I buy my cereal now? And the woman goes, I don't like those stories. I like uplifting stories like the Shawshank Redemption. <laughs> King looked at her and said, 
I wrote that too. And she goes, no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know if I was aware this was a King property when I first saw it in theaters. I, I, at some point, I realized that soon after. But yeah, there's no ghost here. There's, there's nothing scary. No psychic powers. I knew this was a Stephen King property when it came out. I read different seasons, which Stuart mentioned there's three movies, but there's four novellas in there. And they're all practically they could be novels. If they were published under the Bachman name, I'm sure he could have squeezed four books out as Bachman here. But I read that back in like high school, 1991, 1992. And it was Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, apt pupil, the body, which you know better as stand by me. And then the breathing method, which isn't as serene as it sounds. <laughs> it's not about Lamaze. It actually is about Lamaze. It's about a beheaded woman doing Lamaze. <laughs> There's a reason why they haven't made it into a movie yet. It feels like a Tales from the Crypt episode waiting to happen. Yes, it's the one that doesn't seem to fit within the framework. But I look forward to hearing your books and nachos on those. I never read this. I was in a big King phase in high school and skipped over it. I only caught up with it in the last couple weeks because I wanted to be ready for these movies. And I decided, what the hell, I'd read Breathing Method as well. It was short. I actually did read this one. This is the last King thing that I ever did read. And I bought the book only because I had to for a college class for The Body. But I really liked this movie when it came out. So the following year, when I had to buy that book, I decided to read this as well. But this is the last King thing I have ever read. And this is the reason this movie here today... Why we did so much of what we did when we started Stephen King, when we did the night shift stuff, and we did those dollar babies, the woman in the room. <laughs> <laughs> the dollar baby pays off. I agree. People probably don't even remember we did that. But the kickoff to night shift was that movie for $25,000 that was like half an hour long. About, yeah, uh, someone being euthanized in an infirmary. Well, that was directed by Frank Darabont. And somehow he used that clout to hold on and become the writer-director debut film. This is his first directing effort 10 years later. Yeah, I've listened to the commentary and done a lot of research on this film. He did direct one small thing before this. This is his first feature work. But what we're seeing with the Shawshank Redemption is probably the world's most profitable dollar baby. Because he did The Woman in the Room and King would sell any student filmmaker the rights to for non-commercial use of his works for a dollar, right? But he was so impressed that somebody actually wanted the woman in the room. You know, everybody wanted Children of the Corn and Night Flyer and those kinds of things. Nobody wanted this one except Frank Darabont. And King was so impressed with him, the two stayed in contact. And then later, Frank said, listen, I'd like to do Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption. And the film rights had been taken by a studio. It was going through development hell for a long time. For a while, they were looking at a whole bunch of different cast members for it. The rights expired. King sued the studio to get them back per his contract and sold them to Frank Darabont again for one dollar. Wow. With the promise that wow. if it actually got picked up by a studio, King would then get paid some more. And in the end, the rumor has it he got only between five and ten thousand. Wow. And of course, Darabont had been working as a screenwriter in between. He wrote what still is probably the best Nightmare on Elm Street movie, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, Dream Warriors. He also did 
the remake of The Blob. And <laughs> we're going to be talking about another one of his scripts coming up on our donation series. He wrote The Fly 2, <laughs> the Eric Stoltz one. <laughs> the one that nobody liked. I don't know. I actually kind of remember thinking things about that kind of worked, but that was a long time ago. And none of that, it should be said, would be the stones you would use to pave your way into a Hollywood Best Picture nomination. But that is what he's going to walk away with 10 years later. Shawshank became a very big deal indeed. And I saw that you mentioned studio involvement. Warner Brothers is involved. Castle Rock is involved. That is the company of Rob Reiner, who does make Stand By Me. We'll be discussing that in a couple weeks. Why didn't he make this one? Well, he... Wanted to. Now, when Darabont was shopping this around, he went to Castle Rock. I mean, Castle Rock, let's look at this. Meathead, Rob Reiner, you know, from All in the Family, made a directorial career, and one of his early critical successes was Stand By Me, ended up naming his production company Castle Rock off of Stephen King's fictional town in which Stand By Me took place. So that's there's no connection to King. With I always thought that was like something to do with King. I guess not. Well, the connection is Rob Reiner made a King movie. Yeah, but King's not making any money off Castle Rock productions. No. Unless they're directly adaptations of his stuff. And so Darabont, when he was looking for a studio to do this, he wanted to go to one who would have the right sensibilities. And since this is in the vein of Stand By Me. I mean, we're dealing with Sentimental King. We're not dealing with Horror King. He just started at Castle Rock and said, hey, here's my screenplay. I want to make this movie. And it did get up to Rob Reiner. And Reiner's like, this script is great. I want to make this. I'll give you two and a half million dollars for your screenplay if you let me do it. And Darabont said, no, I want to do this one on my own. And so you can either give me the production deal or I'll shop it around. I guess it worked out for both of them. Castle Rock made money and Darabont made a name. Yeah, Rob Reiner made North. I don't think it worked out for him. Ooh. But <laughs> hey, whatever. You know, you win some, you lose some. Good on Frank Darabont to stick to his guns, to play chicken, to say, I know that I can do this as my directorial debut. I would not have bet on that based on Woman in the Room. I mean, I kind of gave that one a pass. I thought it was okay for a student film. It was certainly better than a lot of the Dollar Babies we watched, but I did not see that it was going to be the start of a, a big Hollywood career. And one last thing about Woman in the Room, if you pay close attention in this movie, you will see the actor Floyd is played by Brian Libby, who was the prisoner who was visited by the main character in The Woman in the Room. So there is that other tie. Oh, okay. But yeah, Shawshank Redemption coming out in theaters. I was there opening weekend, and it's a damn good thing I was, because it wasn't in my town much <laughs> longer than opening weekend. Yes, this is remembered as this beloved chestnut, but it bombed. I mean, it should be said, this movie had no audience when it came out. Yeah, I was shocked to find that out. It made like only $24 million during its initial run. I saw it in theaters too. I don't know if it was opening weekend, but I remember it was like a Saturday and I was just theater hopping. Like, so I saw Pulp Fiction and I saw this and maybe another movie all the same day. Again, th this was nominated for Best Picture. I had no idea that it was such a bomb. They say that when you get nominated for Best Picture, 
automatically you make 20 million at the box office. Well, this made what, 24? That, that, <laughs> 24. Should, tell you, that should tell you something. It just really barely eked into the nominations. I remember that was the year of Forrest Gump versus Pulp Fiction. Uh, you know, the Weinsteins pushed their romantic comedy for Weddings and a Funeral. Robert Redford represented the old farts with Quiz Show. This was the fifth slot contender. I don't think anybody expected this to win. But it was nominated for five Academy Awards. Yeah, this one, it had only made $16 million in its initial September 1994 release. After the Oscar noms, it did go back out in February 95, made an additional $9 million, But it's made more since. It was re-released on its 10th anniversary, re-released on its 20th anniversary. And Stuart, I remember being with you in theaters in 2004. I can't remember what movie we were seeing, but we walked past a poster for the Shawshank Redemption. I had no idea it was coming back out in theaters. I'm like, why do they have this old poster up? It's a great Drew Struzan piece, but I didn't understand that it was coming back out. And you went on a tirade. <laughs> I couldn't. I'm like, how does anybody not love this film to show my hand early and to hear the venom you spewed in that movie theater about that poster? Yes, it is time to come clean. I would imagine this is going to come as a terrible shock. For most, if not all of our listeners. The, the torches are being lit. The pitchforks are being raised. <laughs> even as you begin. Stuart was afraid to review this movie. Because, I mean, this is the number one movie on IMDb of all time. Yes. To me, for a while anyway, after I initially saw it, I would refer to it as my least favorite movie of all time. And it wasn't a reaction to the popularity. Because keep in mind, that movie was not popular. It was a reaction to the fact that I had a strong aversion to this movie. So much so that I knew, I only saw it once on video after the fact. I am glad about that. I can't imagine what it would have been to go to the movie theater. But I did not enjoy this movie a lot. And yes, even though I know that many people feel sorry for me that I've suffered through so much bad King, I should be glad that we're back to A-list King again after so many children of the corn. I would rather watch more corn, which we could all agree was bad, than to have the debate that I was preparing to have coming back to Shawshank Redemption, which is that it is a movie that absolutely everyone insists is a brilliant movie that I not only disliked or didn't get, I detested. I called it the Saw Stank Retribution. <laughs> that was my <laughs> reference for it. That's okay. According to Tim Robbins, a lot of people call it about that. Nobody can remember this title. <laughs> Yes, I do remember it's such a weird title, but yeah, for me, the best picture in my mind, like personally trying to decide what my favorite movie of the year was, it was between not Forrest Gump, but Pulp Fiction and this, like I really liked this movie when it first came out. It was one of the first VHS tapes I ever owned when I started buying movies. And the thing is though, I probably haven't seen it in gosh, 15, 16, I, I don't know, a long time, many years. Like it, it's, I think it's on cable so much these days. Like you don't need to own it or even watch it, it just absorbs through the TV rays. That's how I was with it. I mean, in that year, I was mainlining Tarantino. If it could have just purified it and injected Tarantino in my veins, I would have. So Pulp Fiction was the only thing I was rooting for since Natural Born Killers wasn't on the roster. But I saw Shawshank in theaters once. And then on TNT, I can't say I sat down and watched this movie since theaters until this viewing. But my God, 
TNT, their slogan was, we know drama. I think it was, we have the rights to Shawshank. And we will just (laughs) play it and play it and play it. In fact, Ted Turner sold the movie rights to his own television network at a substantially discounted rate. And so they just played this thing into the ground. I'm surprised that I had to pull out a Blu-ray to watch this on. I felt like when we were getting ready to do this review, I could have turned on TNT at any moment of the day and watched Shawshank Redemption. (laughs) Well, I remembered how the movie made me feel. I had no memory about the contents of the movie. So imagine my surprise a few weeks ago when I'm like, okay, I'm going to read different seasons. I read Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, and I like it. I'm like, I got no problem with this story. This is a well-constructed short story. I think that it works very, very well. So it made me actually excited to come back to this movie. I'm like, how could this story go so wrong in my mind? Or is it wrong? Was there something wrong with me? I certainly was a different kind of film goer back in 1995 when I rented this on VHS. And I guess my curiosity coming back to it is, did Frank Darabont screw up or did I just not see what was obvious to everyone else? Now, it wasn't just Stephen King that got me into theaters. While I have seen most King films in theaters, there were a few that I'd stay away from, like, you know, Night Shift and whatnot. But something that also brought me back for this one, Tim Robbins. I was a massive Tim Robbins fan, seeing just about everything the man did. I mean, I saw freaking IQ the previous year in theaters. Okay, I thought we were going to go back to Howard the Duck. Of course we're going back to Howard (laughs) the Duck. Are you kidding me? (laughs) That's the roots of it all. (laughs) Yeah, I, Tim Robbins is a very weird actor to peg. I feel like he was not a natural choice for this role because to most people, he was a comedic actor. That he had been in most successful in Bull Durham, I think, was the movie that had really been his breakout. And, you know, there had been Hudsucker Proxy that same year. He had done Bob Roberts. Then there was that weird horror movie, Jacob's Ladder. But that was like, why is this comedian in this horror movie? I did not think of him as someone that wanted to do drama. But when I thought of him at that time, yes, I did see him primarily comedic. Tapeheads, get a chance, give that one a go. Him and John Cusack, it's a... I haven't rewatched it in many years. Yeah, I, I feel the same way. I liked it then. Yes, the Roscoe's Chicken and Waffle rap. I just, I still YouTube that every so often. But I was thinking about The Player and Jacob's Ladder. And so I would see just about anything Tim Robbins would do. Hudsucker Proxy is to this day one of my favorite Coen Brothers films. So I saw it because of him. And then, of course, Morgan Freeman who doesn't see everything the guy from The Electric Company does, right? <laughs> Where was he at his career? Because I rewatching this, like, I thought maybe it was March of the Penguins that made the, that whole meme about hearing things in Morgan Freeman's voice. <laughs> I gotta guess it's The Roots is this one. He just talks during this whole film. I want to tell him to <laughs> shut up. <laughs> yeah, I do feel like this is the movie that made him a leading man. He was actually nominated for Best Actor, not Tim Robbins, for this movie. And it wasn't lead, not supporting. And... Up to this point, he was a liked character actor. I mean, Unforgiven, he had got nominated. He was very good in that, paired with Clint Eastwood. And then a few years before, he had been in Miss Daisy and Glory. But he was not a big name yet. Miss Daisy is where I first really paid attention to him. I mean, I'd seen him in things. Yes, I was 
13 years old and watching Clean and Sober and Lean on Me, but... Oh, Lean on Me. Batman. You could call me Batman. I remember that. Yeah. <laughs> it was Driving Miss Daisy and Robin Hood that made me really start paying Oof. attention to him. And then, yeah, Unforgiven in 92. But yes, Shawshank is when he became like a superstar. He'd follow up with Seven and... Well, he also does a whole lot of shit like Outbreaking Hard Rain, but... Stuff that made money, though. He yes. really did become, I think he's considered one of the most highest grossing actors just because of his involvement in all these high caliber franchises. And I do feel like this is the movie that I think everyone maybe associates with launching him into a big time career. It became the Morgan Freeman performance, you know, the sonorous voice, the eulogizing, the godliness, all of that really began here. Before then, he was just another actor. And it is funny. I mean, we'll talk about it as we go through. But there really are two Morgan Freemans in this movie that I see. I still see some signs of the young Morgan Freeman. It's hard to believe that man was ever young. But you get glimpses of it here. He's actually laughing and joking. And he seems like an average person. And then there's the narration that's so serene and godly. And is just an indication of the actor he'd become. And nobody can do a Morgan Freeman but Morgan Freeman. I mean, that man's voice is like velvet, but I could do the, at least the cadence. Wasn't the original choice. I think one of the interesting things about it is that they were looking at white actors. I remember hearing names like Paul Newman, Robert Redford, both of which had already been in prison movies, Harrison Ford. That one kind of makes sense. Yeah, I mean, he makes the joke in the film that he's Irish. And was that from the book? Was he a white character in the book? Yeah. Yeah, they were looking at a lot of different people. I think, of course, the best one that I heard the pairing of is they were also not set on Tim Robbins. That could have been Johnny Depp or Nick Cage or Ooh. Kevin Costner. Ooh, the possibilities. I heard Tom Hanks, <laughs> but he was off making for his gump. Yes, Tom Hanks was going to do it if he hadn't had gump. He would later make up for it by doing Green Mile, which we'll get to sometime before we're all dead. But the best one is like, it almost seems like a repairing of the color of money because it was going to be Tom Cruise as Andy with Robert Redford as Red. <laughs> Tom Cruise was offered everything. You just have to understand, if it was a movie, <laughs> Tom Cruise was your first choice. That was just the way that it was. But that would not be a particularly strong casting choice, I don't think. I don't know. That I, I could see it, actually. <laughs> oh, I, yeah. I mean, I could see them making it. Yes, I can definitely see them greenlighting that. And it's hard to believe now. It's so easy to only think of him as a couch jumper. But back then, I mean, Rain Man would have been fresh in everybody's mind and born on the 4th of July. He was doing drama. Sure, absolutely. Far and away would have been very recent. Proof that he shouldn't do movies like this. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, I mean, let's get into it. Because I'm eager to get back into Shawshank. Let's hear the plot and let's talk about the best or the worst movie of all time. Tim Robbins plays Andy Dufresne, the only innocent convict in the Shawshank State Penitentiary. Andy is serving two back-to-back -back life sentences for the murder of his wife and her lover. But despite the wrongness of his incarceration, Andy never let the prison get him down. And while on the inside, he spread some hope to some of the other inmates. Inside, Andy made friends with Ellis Boyd Redding, known as Red, and played by Morgan Freeman. Red narrates the story and describes himself as someone who can get things. 
That is how Andy approaches him when he first wants a tiny rock hammer to chisel pebbles he finds in the yard, then later when Andy wants a poster of Rita Hayworth to hang on his wall. Not all Andy's experiences are good ones. A gang of what they call bull queers take to regularly raping Andy, but that stops when Andy proves his usefulness to the guards. On the outside, Andy was a banker, and when a cruel and brutal guard Byron Hadley, played by Clancy Brown, inherits some money, Andy risks his neck to give the man some tax advice. The result is Andy comes under the protection of the guards and becomes the prison accountant, of special use to Warden Samuel Norton, played by Bob Gunton. The Warden is skimming money off the top and doing some shady deals, and has Andy help launder the money. In exchange, Andy is given a private cell and allowed to build a prison library, which Andy uses to help many convicts get their high school degrees and prepare for work on the outside. Andy also inspires the convicts to feel like they're on the outside. While tarring a roof, Andy convinces the guards to give the men a couple of beers. And when Andy's library comes into the possession of some record albums, Andy blares Mozart across the yard, which gets him two weeks in solitary confinement, which they call the hole. Things start to change for Andy when a new convict comes in named Tommy, played by Gil Bellows. Tommy has a new kid on the outside, and has Andy help him learn to read and even get his degree. And when Tommy finds out what Andy is in for, the new convict realizes in a previous prison he was cellmates with the man who actually murdered Andy's wife and lover and confessed to the crime one night. Andy takes the information to the warden, but Norton doesn't want to lose his pet accountant, so he gives Andy two months in the hole and has Tommy killed by Hadley. When out, Andy seems broken, but he has one more secret. For the 19 years of his imprisonment, Andy has been digging a hole in the wall of his cell. That's what the Rita Hayworth poster was hiding and then several other posters after it. So one final night, Andy escapes through the wall, crawls through 500 yards of sewage pipe, and escapes free to Mexico. He's never caught, and he uses his knowledge to steal $350,000 of the warden's money and leaves enough evidence that Hadley goes to jail and Norton commits suicide. But his tales become the thing of legend in Shawshank, and the next year, when Red finally gets paroled after 40 years in prison, he goes down to Mexico to rejoin his friend as credits roll. Now, just to start off, I just would like to address the room. How do you feel about prison movies? Because already, I think we're at a disadvantage. I can't really name any that I've ever really liked. And I've seen some of the beloved ones, like Cool Hand Luke, Midnight Express, In the Name of the Father. I don't like any of them. I feel like prison brings out the really sanctimonious side in a lot of filmmakers. They get strident, they reach for profundity, and it often becomes unbearably pretentious, not to mention dramatically uninteresting. People sitting in cells, not particularly interesting to watch. Yeah, I, I don't know how many prison movies I've seen outside of like the bad B-movie ones, which <laughs> usually involve females. <laughs> Girls in cages, I'm not talking about that movie. Yeah, I like those. <laughs> yes, I don't know how sanctimonious those get, but... <laughs> You know, I never watched that show Oz, which was all about prison. I, it's something I never really got into. I mean, I'm sure if I thought about it, there might be a few, but it's not a genre I've really reflected on. This is probably really the depth of my knowledge of it. In my high school senior year, I kind of went through a prison movie phase with the high point being Cool Hand Luke. I think I was exposed to that through school, and I liked it so much. 
I started going back and seeing a lot of prison movies like Midnight Express and Great Escape. Yeah, I've seen Great Escape. I would call that a World War II movie, but I guess it could be a prison movie too. Yeah, I, I agree. If it's about breaking out, that's that's one thing. But dealing with the dramatics of prison. I mean, I saw ones that were okay. I mean, Kiss of the Spider Woman. I did really like Dead Man Walking, which Tim Robbins would make right after this movie. Yeah, and there's so many different types. There's The Longest Yard, you know. Yeah, I mean, I've seen like Hunger, which is, I, I think of that as more of a political drama, but I, I could definitely see what you're saying, Stuart. They bring a lot of that into that movie, which takes place in a prison. Yeah. And I refuse to see Hunger for that very reason. I'm like, oh, I just don't want to sit through that. <laughs> Actually, I've not seen Dead Man Walking for the exact reason you're describing, Stuart. I just, it sounds so sanctimonious and self-important. And, you know, a lot of things that Sean Penn's associated with have this stench of hoidiness that I just don't want to smell. But Cool Hand Luke is one of my all-time favorite films. And so hmm. for that reason alone, I would say I'm very open to the prison movie genre. Okay. It's very easy to get lost in the politics, I think. I think that is the danger, is really coming with a political slant, which could turn people off, especially if you're not into those politics. And I will just say, though, avoid Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger in Escape Plan, or Stallone in Lockup, or really any Sylvester Stallone prison <laughs> film. Just, just don't. <laughs> yeah, I'll agree with you there. Most Stallone should be avoided, frankly. <laughs> But anyway, I bring it up just to talk about context of already, I feel like it's one that I'm going to struggle with. It's not entertainment, certainly, to come to this, but it also it feels like there's so many times that artists can go wrong in contemplating what a prison is and what it means. And I do feel like a big thorn in my side in watching this prison movie, the one that the reason why I call it my least favorite one of all time when I saw it in 95, was that I felt like it really isn't about a prison that is real. It is sort of a construct, <laughs> a fanciful construct. It does not feel like a place that has ever existed. I'm struggling with that because, yes, in some ways, this movie feels too good to be true. I mean, I'm not going to get out of this podcast without using the phrase Capra-esque, so let's just invoke it now and go from there. I mean, <laughs> it's the it's a wonderful life of prison movies, but I feel when I reflected on it for this review, Cool Hand Luke's like that too. You know, your prisoners are always not so bad, and the guards are. I mean, even One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it's a type of prison movie. Those guys don't want to be there. And I look at all three of those films, those are the three I know best, Shawshank, Cuckoo's Nest, and Cool Hand Luke. And the prisoners are always not too bad of guys, and the guards are horrible people. And so... Try to think of two things. First of all, this is a period piece. It started in the 40s, so it's a different time, a different kind of prison. But also, if you're going to be telling a story about giving hope to the hopeless, yeah, you just don't want to hate all these people. I mean, they're mostly murderers that are in this prison, but they're the nicest group of murderers you're ever <laughs> going to want to know. They are not going to get into a lot of the crimes these people committed. We'll, we'll get a few stories. But even starting out with our protagonist, Andy Dufresne, I mean, is he real? Like, I feel like, first of all, dude, get a better lawyer. Like, you talk too much on the stand. You shouldn't even be talking on the stand. Like, when a, when a prosecutor's like, did you follow them home? And he's like, well, no. 
stop there. Don't go into how you went to bars and got drunk. <laughs> like, I, I guess this is part of his character, though, that he, he is detached and from reality or, or from his wife. And we'll see that follows to him when he gets to prison to his benefit. Yeah, Andy Dufresne is, an, is a sticking point. And I think the reason for it is is that I like him a whole lot better when I look at him as a Christ metaphor than when I look at him as a human being that's struggling with problems. I don't feel like he has a great character arc that he learns a lot by going to prison. He goes to prison and transforms everyone else. And when you accept that he is the magic and that he is not, in fact, a character, it plays a whole lot better. But it was a big sticking point to me that the main character... I mean, are we supposed to think that he's guilty? I couldn't remember watching these opening scenes at the trial where we just have a lingering doubt about his innocence for much of the movie. It's not conclusive. I don't think so. I think we're always supposed to believe he's innocent and he's been put there unjustly. Yeah, I'd always read this story before seeing this movie, so I'd always known he was innocent, but that is an interesting question. I feel the way it's played here in the beginning, you could go either way, but... It's Tim Robbins. He's our hero. He says he's innocent. I think we're supposed to believe him. Right. And I, I think that's the assumption we are to make. But I think if it had been directed differently or cast differently, you might just think it was a guilty man going to jail. But no, the, I do think now, 20 plus years later after this has come out, like I was a very different person when I first saw this. I had no idea what a Mary Sue is. I do have that now. So the fact that you have this guy who's a banker that I guess that involves knowing tax law and accounting. He could have been a teller, who knows? But he also knows like <laughs> geology and how to sculpt. Sculpting rocks is very hard. That's not part of geology, <laughs> understanding like different kind of rocks. But like this guy knows everything. I think it's, yeah, you, you have to see this as a type of metaphor that he is this Christ-like character floating throughout the prison, bringing hope to them. I, I just, I have to read it that way to enjoy it more now because otherwise he, he starts to bug me with how magical he is. Martha Stewart is another character hated for exactly those reasons. She can do everything. She doesn't sleep. <laughs> she brags that she only sleeps three nights a year and she also went to jail. And I bet you yes. she had the same story. <laughs> this does kind of feel like Martha Stewart in jail to me. She can just magically do everything. And I think when I was younger, opposite from you, Jacob, that was really something I couldn't go along with. That I wanted to identify with the Tim Robbins character, I found it impossible to do. And to me, I wasn't overthinking it when I saw this in theaters. I mean, I was 19 years old, and my impression of this wasn't that he was a Christ metaphor, or that he was unbelievably good. I mean, I think because we're being told this through Red's point of view, Red's narration, that I'm pulled in and believe in the verisimilitude of these characters and their being. But the actor Clancy Brown, who plays the mean prison guard, he did say that as an actor, he had a really hard time justifying his character's actions and coming up with motivation. And finally, somebody said to him, you're not a real character. You are the way things are remembered. You are the way Red is going to personify a guard. You are a myth and a trope in a fable. You're not a person. And that actually helped him to find that character. And I think that could be said about Andy as well. You know, and that's a really, really definitive good point about how you're to take this story. That this is mostly a story narrated by the real character, the one that is a human being. The actor I like very much, I think most of the world likes very much, Morgan Freeman, I have always hated 
and continue to hate the voiceover in this movie. I think that when you read Shawshank on the page, the fact that it is told by Red is great and greatly helps you accept the magical qualities of the story. When I watch this movie and we have scene after scene after scene of him telling us how to feel about everything, I was struggling with this. In film school, I would write scripts with voiceover and my teacher would strike it out and be like, take this out. I'd be like, no, it needs to. You have to. After this movie, the one benefit I had after watching this movie is I never use voiceover again. You know, that is something I really noticed was the amount of voiceover. And again, when I first saw this as a young man, that helped me. It helped me know what to feel and what people were thinking. You know, it's really popular these days to take a film and do some kind of weird cut. Like, I know the Germans are getting this cool black and chrome cut of Mad Max Fury Road, which is done in black and white, because that's George Miller really wanted to do a black and white version of a Mad Max film. Like, I do feel like if there could be a fan cut where we remove all the narration, Mm. it might be a stronger film. Like, I might like the ambiguity more. Like, there are definitely scenes where I'm like, I wish Morgan Freeman wasn't talking here. I wish I could just feel the emotion of this scene instead of being told what to feel. And I think... I think Morgan Freeman gives the emotion to the scenes. I wouldn't want that narration-free edit. I like being absorbed by Red's point of view. That's the story we're getting here. And again, It's a Wonderful Life had a lot of voiceover from, you know, Clarence and the other angels narrating what they were seeing in George Bailey's life. And so to have that here seems to fit. I feel that, for better or for worse, Darabont is too close to King, so much of this dialogue is copied and pasted from the short story. And the short story is told in first person, which if you listen to all my Night Shift reviews, King likes to go to that point of view. He Two of the stories in different seasons are first person, this and the body. So I think it was that adherence to King's prose that created this, not a storytelling need, But King does consider this his favorite movie, probably because it's the one that has the most of his words in it. (laughs) Yeah, I'm going to discount any King opinion. No disrespect to the man. He's he's right to have whatever favorites he wants, but he hates this Kubrick shining. So he's off my book. I'm not going to take his word on what the best versions of his books are. Yes. He tends to think the most faithful are. And again, when I read this story, absolutely this prose works. It's We're reliant. He's the only one we can trust is read. But here in a movie, we can make our own observations. And there are still times in this movie where I'm screaming at the scene to just shut up and let me see it. As an adult, I don't like being told what to do. So it really bugs me that someone's telling me how to feel throughout the film. Yeah, and sometimes it's beautiful. I don't want to say it's always wrong, but sometimes... It really works, and you're like, yeah, that was the passage to keep, but most of it should have been junked. I disagree, and I don't think it's telling me how to feel any more than a good filmmaker should tell me how to feel. I think that that's the job of a filmmaker, is to present emotion. But not literally tell you. Listen, if you do it in score, if you do it in lighting, if you do it in dramatic angle, if you do it with sound effects, or if you do it with voiceover, it's just all different tools to build the same bureau. You know what I'm saying? So I'm okay with this narration. I guess I'm the only one, but I like the words coming out of Morgan Freeman's mouth. I love his delivery. I love the words. I love the way that it overlays the story because this is going to span 19 years and we need something 
to help smooth over those passages of time. Morgan Freeman provides us the single point of view that does that, and yes, he deserves to be the best actor nominated from this, not supporting. He carries this show. I'm not going to say the narration is going to sway me to make this a recommend or not recommend. I'm just saying I would like to see it tried another way. It may be a stronger film without it. Yeah, I suspect that is true. I suspect that a first-time director in love with King's words is going to make choices that a more seasoned director coming into this project would just be like, eh -eh, we're not going to do it that way. And it would be nice to see a remake or a redo from some other point of view. Because again, I think what was initially so hard for me to even start with this movie were these directing choices. Was the music, certainly, and the narration. Oh, this music is gorgeous. I love this music. We're actually going to be giving a way one of the double cd scores of this through our <laughs> facebook page it is just oh my god i can just Are get really? lost in this yes thanks to our friends at la la land records they hooked us up and yeah gorgeous stuff i love that this always happens uh, that we also gave away the soundtrack to big trouble in little china after i dissed how much i didn't like that either but thomas <laughs> newman yeah they hire him for these dramas he also did the score for american beauty which i know is another movie that people just love and i do not I, I'm with you there. Hate it. And a big part of it is that overbearing score. I just don't like his music. I don't like his insistence that I should feel this way in this moment. I apologize for our credits then. Because I love this fucking music. <laughs> Gorgeous. It's just so beautiful and moody. And you could just listen to it absent of this film and still feel. And you don't even have to know where it fits in this movie. It conveys the emotion so beautifully. It is like... Every piece of this, the casting and the music, it's honestly like synergy beyond any planning. I mean, I've seen Darabont's other work. He's not this good, but here everything clicked. Well, let's talk about what clicks. What it clicks into is a very fanciful world, a world that feels completely removed from reality. And I think when, when I asked to go to prison and contemplate the idea of redemption and what it means, and certainly if I'm going to challenge and say that the wardens and the guards are worse than the people that are incarcerated, I need a healthy dose of real life. And I think by making it this artificial world where, I mean, they have a running joke where everyone says everyone's innocent here, but I think that's literally how we're to take this world with the music and the performances. Everything is just so saintly. No, I don't, I don't think we're supposed to take it as everyone's innocent. I do think, again, I, I don't know if the politics are in its sleeve, but it's saying, hey, let's look at what happens to people in prison. I do think one of the strong suits of this film is talking about how people could get institutionalized and is just locking everyone up the best thing to do. I mean, recently there's been studies about how solitary confinement like creates like horrible mental illness and like we're going to see that in here. So I, I think there's room for that discussion. It, this is, you know, it does get kind of black and white at times, but that's because it focuses on the guards and the good characters, how evil they are. And it's there's a bunch of murderers, but again, we're never going to really reflect on their victims. Here's the one thing I like about this story. And I mean, this all goes back to King. <laughs> I mean, yes, Darabont took the story, which was told non-chronologically and is honestly quite a jumble for a little bit. He untangled it and put it chronologically, but this is King's story. So any and all points have to go to him with one exception. And I like that we are in a prison with bad, hardened criminals. 
we just happen to hang out with the guys who made a mistake or did something really stupid a long time ago. They've been in prison a long time. Red was arrested 20 years before this movie starts. He made a mistake as a young kid. It's never even really said here what he did, but he intentionally killed his wife and accidentally killed the neighbor and a kid too and went to jail for it. That's pretty bad, even if it's been 20 years. But he's repented. You know, there's got to be something said for redemption and penance. And he has come out the other side. He's going to say at the end of this movie, he wishes he could talk to that dumb kid who made these mistakes and tell him not to do it. And so we're hanging out with the people who aren't what we think of as the hardened criminals, you know, the people who go to jail and it's basically recess from their life of crime that they're going to return to when they get out, be it a white collar criminal or a gang member who's going to murder again. These are the people who we hang out with who are not that, but we do have the rapists in here and the hardened people. And that's what Andy has to deal with. I mean, this movie is really, I normally think of every 30 minutes the movie changes, but this one, every 20 minutes, something new happens. And the first 20 minutes is Tim Robbins, his trial, his getting used to getting in prison. And it, 20 minute mark is the end of his first night. And the fat guy cried and was killed by the guard. Uh, the second 20 minutes, though, is Andy's abuse and having to realize that in prison, he's going to get raped a lot. <laughs> yeah, and this is another thing I hated about this movie. Is that, I'm not saying there's not a lot of rape in prison systems. It is actually overplayed in media, though. I did read up on this. There, there's less than you would think based on watching movies. It's actually overplayed in a lot of the studies. The media went off old studies that did really overplay this. I took criminology classes in high school that were saying it was like 80%. So it's the studies that influence the media that now have influenced the perception when new studies are like, yeah, maybe not that much. But again, when I talk about the artificial Hollywood quality of this prison, the only sex between men is going to be non-consensual, which is just fraudulent. That is not true. And the good guys, of course, have this non-sexual union. I mean, Morgan Freeman's character is actually going to call Tim Robbins a tall drink of water, but they never <laughs> hook up. I did notice that. And yet this is a love story between these two men. It's just fraudulent. We need to believe that the bad guys are sodomites and the good guys would just sit in their jail cell and whittle stones. Well, here's my question, probably for you, Arnie, because you study all the background. Like, this jail, I, I'm assuming this is some kind of prison it's filmed at because it, it almost looks like a church. It, it, you know, we've talked about Christ metaphors and who the good guys and the bad guys are. This jail feels like a church. You're going to have this warden heavily into the Bible. Is this like a real old prison that they used? It's a combination. They did film at a real prison that they did pick because of its high ceilings and, yes, a cathedral-like feel. But a lot of this is L.A. soundstage because just filming with small prison cells and all that, you can't do it. You need an artificial thing where they could move walls and whatnot. I think I remember doing my research for Human Centipede 3. They filmed at some <laughs> of the same locations, but don't quote me on that. Wow. <laughs> I didn't even know Human Centipede 3 was filmed in the States. And don't watch Human Centipede 3. There's one thing I'll admit. <laughs> that's a worse movie than the one we're discussing right now. Oh, God, talk about prison movies. I forgot about that one. And yeah, that, oh, boy. <laughs> yes. 
But anyway, back to this one. Yes, what we have here is the beginnings of a friendship. And at the same time, we have Andy's character dealing with the fact that everyone else wants to make him their pet. And you said about the love story between two men. I think that's something that really has made this movie be successful. There's not a whole lot of true bromance films where it's just about making a good male friend, you know? In movies, the best you get to that is like a lethal weapon where you go out and kill some people together and then bond over a couple of beers. But here, you have one about a solid male friendship. It's a powerful thing, and I think that's one of the big draws. I know this movie is loved by a lot of guys, and I find a lot of women haven't seen it. They think of it just, oh, why, why do I want to watch a prison movie with a bunch of dudes? And I don't know if that's changing now. That's been my experience for 20 years, though. And I think part of it is, and we'll see this again with The Body, to see a movie about just male friendships. And it doesn't, there doesn't have to be sodomy for it to be a love story. You can have a platonic male love between friends, and I think this movie does it well. But doesn't that feel like whitewashing? Isn't that, we can't dare show loving gay relationships in this prison because that is not the message we're sending. The rapists are the bad guys and the good guys don't have sex. I don't think that it's fraudulent to show platonic male friendship. No, I have many platonic male friends and I have not engaged in sodomy with them. So I, I, I think what Stuart's saying, the problem is the only time gay relationships are shown in this film is when they're bad, when someone's a victim. Correct. And that is when you look at prisons. I mean, that's a constant in any prison movies. You're going to have the male characters hook up. I mean, that is to not do that. And again, to portray this as some saintly asexual relationship just again feels like another artificial only in the movies this is not a real prison environment listen if you're going to complain that there's no consensual gay sex in prison i can go with you king had that in his book i could see why there's no room for it here in this movie but if you're complaining that red and andy never hooked up i'm not going to agree with you because not every two friends hook up i'm not saying that they should or could but he does call him up to all drink of water and there is <laughs> he is going to run away and be with him and i don't feel like it totally plays as platonic I think it does. Yeah, I mean, come on. This is 1994. This is coming out. President Clinton was still, you know, don't ask, don't tell. Defense of Marriage Act. So I don't think we could slam it too hard for not being progressive, but I do get what you're saying. Yeah, I'm just saying it's another level of where this movie is not telling the truth so it can create this safe environment where we can think of prison as an artificial place. They do go out of the way, King, in his story, to make sure... Andy is completely a good guy. This is a prison break movie, but you have to want to see him out and not just because he's such a badass that you're rooting for him, you know? You are supposed to believe in him being a good guy in every single way who had no choice but to escape the way he did. And yeah, I think it's important to get you on his side. This is going to be a black and white Capra-esque story. It's not there for the multi-shades of gray of he really was a murderer, but he escaped. How do we feel about that? Right. And again, that is why I had a problem with it then. If we're talking about my feelings now, re-experiencing that... I would say that having read the story first, I understood this very much as a parable about a man and his faith, that Tim Robbins is not a real person at all. 
It doesn't even really have anything to do with a prison. This is a story about when you find yourself in impossible circumstances, how do you get through? How do you keep hope alive? And Tim Robbins just sort of represents hope. He is a spiritual embodiment of hope. And when you look at the movie that way, I mean, I guess it's kind of nice. I don't do a lot of self-help. So I can't say that I personally connect to those kinds of messages. I don't go to church. I don't like sermonizing. But I think that this is pretty good sermonizing. But it's a shitty prison movie. I think that's what I'm saying. I think it works on all those levels. You can take it how you want. In college, I took this as just a prison movie. As I grew older, I have seen this now as a very spiritual movie. And I'm not a religious person. I'm very agnostic. But I consider myself to be spiritual. So while I can understand all of the Christ parables going on here, I can more feel this movie working for me on that level of hope and hopeless situation. And everybody, as they say, is in a prison of their own making, right? Whatever it is. And so this is a literal prison, but you can apply it to any situation you're in. Job, school, relationship. And in fact, it's better when you do that and don't look at it as a prison from 1947. That's what I'm saying. When you do take a hard look at it, it does not hold up. When you let go with it as a metaphor, a much better experience. And yet, one of the things I do like about it, because it does take place in a prison, it is about compromise. I mean, we've talked about so much about Andy being this Christ-like saint. He is going to say he had to go to prison to become a crook, and we're going to see that as he learns to play the system. You know, they're tarring that roof. They get that summer duty where they're out in the air and he hears Hadley this awful prison guard complaining like Hadley is such a jerk and like not only does he like murder people but he's complaining about inheriting $35,000 because <laughs> the government's gonna take all his money which I, I man I, I thought I was watching this in 2016 hearing someone complain <laughs> about taxes but apparently that's universal yeah this is a good scene I'll give you that I, just the way it's all set up I think all of it plays very very well in the way that Andy tries to intervene and almost gets killed for it well because Andy is not smart. Again, you don't go up and say, do you trust your wife to a guy who murders prisoners? You go, hey, I could get you to keep all that money. Not to mention he's gone to jail and as everyone believes he's there because he killed his wife. So he's not coming off as the authoritative tax guy that he should. He's an accountant and that's the way he's looking at it. But it takes a beat with him hovering above the precipice about to be pushed off the roof. Gorgeous camera shot there. Yeah. And again, no one would ever say anything bad about Roger Deakins. He was a hero of mine in film school. I think that he's an excellent cameraman and he shows why in every shot of this movie. Yeah, that tarring the roof scene, it's one of the two iconic ones from this. When you think of this movie, you think of this scene and the opera scene we'll get to later. And here, I didn't realize it came so early in the film. We're just over a half an hour into this film. They're tarring the roof and he does go up to Clancy Brown, who we've talked about him and a couple other things. He's a character actor who I really like in things like Starship Troopers and the HBO series Carnival. But he's here as just the ultimate evil guard. And all Andy wants is he's not even doing this to get away from the bull queers or anything. He's doing this because he thinks the other men, he doesn't drink, but the other men could use some beer. Is that too much? 
Would it be too much for him to drink? Why? I guess my question is, why make the choice that he's not going to drink? Obviously, he drank on the night he almost killed his wife. And so maybe he's made some alcohol anonymous choice to, to swear off because of that bad event of that night. But why risk his life and do this for this moment? Because as Morgan Freeman's going to tell us, he just wanted to feel a little more human. Mm. That is the stuff that bugs me. But is that human? No, feeling more human would be to drink a beer with the guys. This is, I want to feel like a martyr. I want to feel like a saint. I took it as he was helping him out. That's how he sees himself. Hey, I got you guys some beers. That's what you like. Yeah, you got to take him as this symbol, as this ultimately good person. If I was judging a different character or a different movie, I'd be like, well, he's trying to curry favor. And Morgan Freeman's voiceover addresses that. He wasn't doing it to curry favor. Well, certainly it seems like he curried favor with the guards and the prisoners by doing this. But if I hadn't read King's Story, I'd have a bigger problem with him not drinking a beer. King's Story makes it very clear why he doesn't drink. And it's because the alcohol is part of the reason he got in prison. He drank too much then. And so I go with that. I wish this movie had called that out more and I'd go with it more here too. Yeah, I do feel like Andy, he may be Christ-like or he may just be a bit autistic. <laughs> like He does things like just to help people because like he's very hard to relate to and, and I think you, the prisoners see that when they try to hand him a beer and he's like, no, I don't want one. He's very shut down and this is both his, his magical power and he'll later admit the reason why he got in this circumstance to begin with. If he had been more present with his wife, she wouldn't have gone with another man and in theory she wouldn't have been there the night that she was killed by some thief casing the golf course but it's also helping him in so many ways as he goes through all of these inhumane experiences on the very first night he doesn't even crack whereas the other people are you know whimper so much they're beaten to death i mean it saves his life in so many circumstances it's hard not to see it as a talent suited for this environment. And once he gets those beers, we're into the third act of this film where Andy is now suddenly in control because he got that guard, the tax advice. He's now going to get all of the prison guards and other prisons are going to send their guards over for tax advice. Again, this is magical, but I like this montage. Like, you know, the first year it's a couple of guards, then it's the whole prison, and then they're scheduling their softball tournament around tax season. Yeah, no, this stuff's fun. It's a good way to show the passing of time, since tax season only comes once a year, and we're going to have to cover 19. I think that worked. Yeah, I agree. I think this movie does a lot. It, it's hard to condense, and they really don't want to do the old age makeup, and I don't blame them. You know, these characters don't look like they age 20 years, and that's okay, because usually when you apply that old age makeup it's really distracting and that's all you're paying attention to so yeah they give tim robbins some gray temples later on it's very very minimal and i think that is the right impulse we don't want to see him doddering around you know with the shakes or anything that that stuff can be really really awful i think of a lot of good actors who have gone down bad roads when they've been given skin blotches and too much wrinkles it's just it's not a good thing don't go full retard and don't go full elderly is what you're saying i just keep thinking of the ripoff of this movie that eddie murphy and martin lawrence did called life i've heard it's good never seen it is that a ripoff it's not just a comedy? I've seen it. I did not like it. I hadn't seen it since it was a new release on video. But no, I. it's very much like this. You know, a couple of serene black men having a long-term friendship as they go full old person makeup in prison. Well, Eddie Murphy loves his old makeup. That's a different thing <laughs> entirely. 
Does he get a fat suit in it? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Now, a question I have for you. Now, Arnie, it doesn't count because you've read the story, maybe that you would be anticipating this, but would an audience member new to this story be aware that he has really been masterminding things from the get-go, that by approaching Red and getting that stone hammer and getting the poster, would you be in any way suspicious about what he's really doing, which I'll go ahead and spoil, he's tunneling out of this prison almost as soon as he's come into it. I'll say when I first saw this, not having read the novella, no, I was totally shocked. I did not realize that he was tunneling out. I didn't really know where this movie was going. I didn't know it was going to be an escape film by the end. There's not enough tells in this movie, I feel. There's the one moment where he goes with his rock hammer. It looks like he's going to write his name on the wall, right? And they cut away before he does. And watching it this time, knowing everything and paying close-ass attention... I'm like, okay, so here's where it's going to start. And later on, we see that when he did it, a chunk came out of the wall. But no, I don't think this movie does enough to tell us. The story does more. There's a period where he gets a roommate and the roommate keeps going. That room had a hell of a draft. It was really cold in that room. And there's more hints dropped. Here, this movie's more about the hope being given in the moment. And just scene to scene, how Andy is making prison better and so there's not enough of going back. I think of around the same time, you know, Singer did The Usual Suspects. And the second time you watch The Usual Suspects, you're like, holy crap, how did I miss that, right? Here, I watched it twice for this review, and you're just not missing it. It's not there to see. And I think that would have improved the film to give us some of that rewatchability by showing that. Then what would Rita Hayworth mean? I didn't know who the hell Rita Hayworth was. When I read that story, and it was called Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, I thought the lead character was going to be some chick named Rita Hayworth. <laughs> I had never heard of her. Is that why they dropped her name from the movie, or is it just too long of a title? Both. Yeah, it's a not a marketable title. Not that Shawshank Redemption is a great title, obviously. You know, the body had it right. We'll call it Stand By Me. We'll name it after a pop tune. They should have named this after a pop tune, and it might have helped. I don't know, but... Fulsome Prison Blues or something. <laughs> uh, according to Darabont, they were afraid if they called it Rita Hayworth and the Shawshank Redemption, people would think that it was a biopic. And he said that even calling it Shawshank Redemption because of the short story, they were being sent resumes of women who wanted to play Rita Hayworth in this. Mm -hmm. So they took that out and just called it the Shawshank Redemption. Everybody admits that this title probably heard it at the theater, though, but Darabont said nobody could come up with a better one. But he, obviously, it's an important thing. I mean, he could have gotten a poster of anything. He wanted to look at a pinup girl. Rita Hayworth was not a great actress. She was the wife of Orson Welles. She did Gilda. We see a clip of that at one point. Red is watching that movie with a bunch of guards. But it changes. It's not even important that it's Rita Hayworth. It becomes Marilyn Monroe and Seven Year Itch, and then later Raquel Welch and 10,000 years BC. It goes with the times. Yeah, another nice way to show the passing of time. Yeah, if it had gone into the 80s, we'd have had Farrah Fawcett. <laughs> I remember Farrah Fawcett being the final poster, but no, it's Raquel Welsh. Is he thinking about his wife? Is thinking about a woman? I mean, is it more based than I don't have a woman and I'm in, in prison and we're just to imply that he takes care of himself and scenes we don't need to see? Or is this a way <laughs> of thinking about the woman that he lost? Because I thought the thing that he wrote on the wall that made it chip, 
and made him realize he could go through it was his wife's name, Jenny. No, he is writing his own name because he saw someone else who wrote their name there. It looked like he was writing a straight line for an A when he was doing it. But honestly, looking at this character, this character is full of hope, but he doesn't have a whole lot of needs, does he? He doesn't have sexual needs. He doesn't have food needs. He just Mm -hmm. chooses not to eat the maggot. He doesn't have drink needs. He's there to help others. I would see this first and foremost as, hey, these other guys have pinup posters in their wall. If I want to be inconspicuous and blend in and have something nobody's going to look twice at, let me get this generic pinup poster. But in King's story, I like that he's fantasizing about the women. And, you know, another foreshadowing, he says, I feel like I could just step through that poster and be on the beach with them. Knowing where this movie's going, I just see it as very utilitarian. It's a way to throw the guards off. Of course, a prisoner, if they're going to have a poster up, it's going to be of some beautiful actress. Well, he also has Einstein. I was about to say, there were other things there. He could have put up a <laughs> biblical one, is I guess my point. And that would have certainly pleased the warden. We're going to see that they form a relationship that is very much based on this master-servant. They quote Bible passages to each other that I think are very prophetic about the way they think of each other when they meet. Yeah, when that warden goes in to size him up, as as Morgan Freeman will tell us later, you know, they toss his cell, but he has that Bible, and again, this is a really tense moment after you've seen the film, because inside that Bible, he has carved out a place to hide that rock hammer, and that warden takes that Bible, and he's quoting verses. I Again, I feel like Andy has memorized Bible verses. He has preconceived this moment happening, and he knows if he can just start spitting out Bible verses, that warden won't open that Bible up to show him certain ones. Yeah, I mean, he could hide the thing in the actual hole itself. I mean, there are other places to hide it, but I think it's symbolic that it's in the Bible. Salvation lies within. Come on, Stuart. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, the fact that if he's always holding that Bible, that won't be frowned upon by the warden. But if he's always, yeah, covered in dirt with his hands in his pocket, well, maybe (laughs) that's a little more suspicious here. But I suspected that the rock hammer was in there. I mean, it is mentioned, Morgan Freeman at one point says, they're going to do an inspection. It's not worth your money to buy this thing. He thinks he's only getting it for so he can polish some rocks yeah the the only real foreshadowing that he might use this to dig out is morgan freeman's red does say it would take like 600 years to tunnel out with that hammer right but this is a character that we will see one of his virtues is is that he just he has patience he has persistence he he will keep writing letters until he gets that expansion for the library that is sort of the early reveal to tell you what's really happening here with the tunnel as well is that he just does not mind that it's going to take forever he knows that he will accomplish it he's dedication his persistence incarnate well come on he's like the rocks that he loves just time and pressure yeah (laughs) and you say that it's foreshadowing to say that it would take 600 years i view that more as misdirection like by saying it's going to take 600 years is to make us write off the rock hammer that we might otherwise go ah he's He's going to dig out with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. It's a pretty well-concealed secret. I think that for most viewers, it is going to be a surprise. I think it was a surprise for me. I couldn't remember my first viewing. I, I, in reading the story again, I remembered it. And of course, coming back to this movie, having read the story fresh in my mind, there wasn't a lot of room for surprises. This movie is very faithful to the source material. It just expands upon it. It makes it longer. It's a relatively short I imagine the screenplay is longer than the pages of this book. It is. I read the screenplay, too. I've read it before it was edited down. So, Darabont added a lot. 
Well, yeah, th- there's going to be these tangents. Like, there's this elderly character, Brooks, the- this old man who's been in prison his whole life. Like, we're going to take a good, what? I don't know, maybe it's only 10 minutes. It feels like a long time. He's going to get his parole. He's going to be let out. We're going to see how he has to work at a grocery store and lives in this halfway house. And he's eventually going to commit suicide. I mean, it's there to tell us how you could be institutionalized, but it's a weird little aside from this prison film when we all of a sudden spend some time with this character. Some of that's from the short story. It's only eight minutes of the film, Jacob, so... It feels longer. It's because it's out of the blue. In there, they do talk about Brooks and his bird, and he sets the bird free, and the bird dies, which was a scene they filmed and didn't actually include. Instead, they show Brooks dying. All of this was not in the short story, but it was all alluded to with the bird dying, saying about how you get to rely on the walls. And this is an extrapolation of a real-life character. The Birdman of Alcatraz. Burt Lancaster played him in a movie. This is just... It's almost at this point uh, a stereotype of someone in prison that would take an animal under his wing and would have it in his coat. It's really funny because King says in the short story, but this was no Birdman of Alcatraz. Uh, (laughs) Then why does he have a bird? Yes, (laughs) exactly. Uh... But in this case, I'll agree that it does feel really random. Brooks was a character who was working in the library when Andy became the accountant. He was assigned to be Brooks' assistant, but we don't get a whole lot of Brooks. So when Brooks takes center stage and starts narrating on his own, it does feel like we've changed channels, but it's really important. This movie is about repetition and showing changes. We've already seen Red's parole get denied twice. It'll happen a third time at the end and he'll get approved. Here, we got to see what happens to Brooks when he gets out because the exact same way is going to happen to Red eventually. He's going to have the same job. He's going to stay in the same room. So we need to see the sad ending so that we can root for the happy one. And this is an important idea to get across about being institutionalized. When I first saw this film, being institutionalized meant your mom wouldn't get you a Pepsi from the Suicidal Tendency song. You know, I, I didn't get what it meant. But, you know, I... I None of us have served, I don't know if we've served any time in prison, or none of us have served long sentences in prison, so... I'm happy to say I've not had any (laughs) lockups. But yeah, I mean, you do need to get this idea across somehow. I wish... I mean, if it's Brooks, I I just wish it was incorporated a little bit better. I I like it okay. I I do feel like it takes too long. It's really the voiceover. Honest to God, my real problem with it is that it has to be told to us as a letter narrating it all. And then Morgan Freeman's got to talk about it after. I mean, like, uh, it just, it's too much sermonizing for my taste. But as far as adding to the story, I agree. I think that what this movie really is about is about this. And that is, what are prisons for, if not for rehabilitating people? If you're just trapping them until they're broken and then releasing them, how is that any good to anyone? Well, I mean, we can get into a huge discussion right here about that, because is there rehabilitation or is it punishment? Does anybody get out of prison and is better? I mean, this is a bigger conversation than movie review. Of course not, but but this movie opens that door. I mean, to watch this movie, you would need to be able to have some kind of dialogue. And this is this is one of the areas where it's more comfortable uh, discussing. I, I think that it wins when you look at the movie from this point of view. When you have people that are clearly not a threat, 
these characters, contrivances though they may be, are not a threat to society. To release them is not going to hurt anyone, and yet they are kept down and humiliated by the wardens and the guards until they really can't do anything else. To release them, it becomes an act of cruelty, and we are to understand that Brooks had no other option but to kill himself. And it was sad, you know, I gotta give it to this actor who plays Brooks, James Whitmore, this guy's been in so much, I've just seen him in a ton of things, he's worked with Darabont again, and The Majestic, I mean, he's worked since the 50s, Them... I, I think of him mostly famous as the orangutan leader in the original Planet of the Apes. He was the president. Oh, so we've even reviewed him before. Yeah, under some makeup. So he really sells these scenes to me. I think his narration, you gotta be intimidated if you're narrating with Morgan Freeman in this, but he holds his own. And it was really sad. It was at this moment in the rewatching, I knew everything that was going to happen in this movie. But even in the rewatching, I found myself getting really worked up and emotional at this scene. It's just so sad. And again, because you can project yourself into Shawshank, whatever you have in your life that's holding you back, to see this as the final outcome is very saddening, which is why we have to counterbalance it with a scene Darabont made up just for this. It had nothing to do with King where Andy's going to play some opera. Yeah, that's, uh, well, first they do, the nice touch I like is that, you know, some of these guys work in the wood shop. They make a sign for the library. The expansion comes through. The bad news is that your librarian is dead. The good news is you got a bigger library. <laughs> so the way that they, they, the happy silver lining here is that they put a sign up that is naming this library after Brooks. That was kind of a nice touch. But yes, now you're talking about another scene that enraged me. It didn't work in Philadelphia, okay? Stop insisting that opera is some come-together where people from different walks of life suddenly bond when they hear an aria. This is some (laughs) Hollywood BS. Agree. I, I don't know if these prisoners come together because of this opera. I don't think any of them have heard opera before. Yeah, they're probably like, what the hell? What the hell is going on? Yeah, Haywood wants to hear some Hank Williams. But, you know, I take this as Andy, as the Christ figure, introducing them to culture, trying to show them something better. It's a nice poetic scene. I'll put it that way. Would this ever happen in a real prison? Probably not. But for a film, I'll just call this a feel-good film. You, Arnie said Capra-esque. I feel like it's an appropriate moment for this kind of film that's going to be all about hope. You know, I accept it only when I look at it from Red's point of view. To Red, this was a meaningful moment. I believe to most of these people, hardened criminals, serving time, it would be like, what the hell is going on? They would not be standing there in awe, jaws agape at how beautiful and magical this is. They wouldn't be transformed. You're saying they're looking at a beautiful magical. I think they do look confused. (laughs) Again, it's Red's perspective coloring this. This is all where the voiceover is coming into it to insist that this is what it all means. I prefer it to be cut. In fact, all of this whole thing, we're going to find out that Tim Robbins is thrown in the hole for this and what gets him by is just thinking about music and suddenly he's a music theorist and an accountant and he's a geologist and he's going to teach, and he's going to build the library. I mean, does he ever sleep? I don't think he does. He's this magical fix-it-all. 
Yeah, because he's tunneling all night. Yeah, he doesn't sleep very much. That's just a nature of the character. But as far as the opera goes, I actually really like opera. So I wasn't even thinking about anything other than this is a really beautiful rendition of Marriage of Figaro. I really just went with that scene. I do see what you mean when you bring up Philadelphia, though. That scene's terrible. So it's, I do think that maybe something more contemporary would work. I think if you went to prison today and you wanted to give all of the prisoners an uplifting moment, Mozart would not be it. They'd probably be throwing things at you, whereas if you played something... Yeah, fuck the police by NWA. That's what I would put on. Yeah, and even that's probably a little old for them. (laughs) And again, we aren't to think of these as real prisoners. These are all saints. These are all innocent people trapped that can relate to culture, and they seem to have no turmoil in their lives at all. At worst, they're prodigal sons who... You know, they haven't committed murder, maybe, but they, they've left the church for a while. Now they want to come back. Like, yeah, I do feel like whatever they've done is underplayed. Yeah, I wish they had dropped this this scene, the whole idea of music. I wish they had actually dropped this composer. Later, you know, Tim Robbins is going to go behind Red's back to use a competitor to, to get an illicit harmonica. And then the, the score at the end is going to be filled with harmonica. It's just, it's too much for my taste. I really, really didn't like any of those choices. And this movie's big. You already are operatic. Why do you literally have to bring the opera in here? Well, I often consider myself one of the more cynical members of this panel. But every so often, I like to get swept away in something like this. I do like some old Capra films. And is this much? It is, but... For some reason, even though I can see the strings wrapping around my aortas and tugging, I'm going with it. It is working. It is being done in a way that is just the right balance to move me without annoying me. Yeah, I mean, to each their own, and obviously a lot of people agree with you. In general, I tend to not like directors with too heavy a hand. But yes, Capra, Spielberg, sometimes you want melodrama. Sometimes you want to go big, and going big allows you to feel something bolder than you would have ever dared to allow yourself. It can play well, or it can backfire. Just for me, the scene, particularly the writing that they give Morgan Freeman, I just... I just hate this scene. I like what happens to Morgan Freeman. Here in the second hour of the film, the big conflict is between Andy and Red. And these guys are close friends, so you wouldn't necessarily see that. But Red has been in this prison over 30 years. Again, right after this record, his parole is turned down again. 30 years in the prison, Red is giving up hope. And it's Andy who plays the music and gives him the harmonica to say, you've got to have hope. You've got to just keep, you know, get busy living or get busy dying. That's a king line. It's repeated here endlessly. I didn't really get a strong sense that, I mean, yeah, I get that he was depressed. But as long as he had his friends around, he felt important. As long as he could bring in contraband good and be the cool guy in the yard... I didn't really get a sense of that existential crisis until after Andy leaves him and that it becomes a hole in him. But up to this point, I didn't see that the opera fixed anything that had gone wrong, that it didn't play that way. What's shocking is when he gets that harmonica, he kind of like blows a note and like puts it down. Like we never see him like really busting out a tune on that thing later on. It, it, It seems very hollow. No, it's only in the score. 
but it's not in within the movie. He doesn't play it again. There's several things like that. Early on, Andy and Red are playing checkers, and Andy's like, I'm going to teach you chess. They never play chess. They play checkers till the end. It's like, you know, why did you put that line in there? Just, I guess it's true that we all say we're going to say we do things and we never do, but... You know, they had to set up the fact that he's polishing stones for it. Don't forget that when he's not knocking down the wall, he's also making finely crafted chess pieces. The real conflict, you say this is the conflict, this is the conflict between our two characters, but the real conflict is going on in the prison itself as the warden has chosen to turn it into a money-making scam, that he invents this inside-out program in 1959 in which he's going to take prisoners out of the cells into the real world and basically compete for jobs that legitimate businesses would have it's bad for those businesses it exploits the workers and this warden gets to take all the payouts and become a millionaire and this actually happens like i remember in the 90s going to see jello offer from the dead kennedys do spoken word and he railed about these kind of jail programs because they you know they undermine unions they undermine people who would actually work for living wages like a lot of telemarketers call you they're in prisons like this kind of thing still happens today well, a lot of this was also deemed cruel and unusual punishment to actually make prisoners get off their ass and work and i'm in favor of having them recontribute to society maybe not underbidding other people but i guess everything's an underbid but doing road construction and you're teaching them a skill that when they get back on the outside they could actually make a living doing construction workers make decent money yes but receive the warden he's using this to skim money he's taking bribes to not underbid other contractors right and they're still eating maggots the idea is that if they're giving back and contributing Maybe, you know, they shouldn't have to beg, borrow, and steal for the library. Admittedly. And Andy is a vital part of this because he's helping them launder the money. How? It's a movie. I'm not going to get too deep into whether or not this would actually work. No, I, I think it works just fine for what it is. That he's created this alternate identity, Randall Stevens, and that behind the biblical proverb is the safe where they keep the cookbooks and the the money and all of that. I actually like this turn of event. I think it's actually the strongest part of the movie experience. It's where Morgan Freeman is talking the least. And I'm just enjoying the movie and the plot developments here. But I do have to ask, is the takeaway that the people running the prison are worse than the people inside? Yeah, that is clearly, that's been the case even before this point. I mean, when you see the way Hadley puts the beat down on that fat guy, you immediately know from the opening scenes that the people running the place are the criminals and the people inside are our heroes. I think, though, this is where you first see the warden really being bad. He may have been turning a blind eye to Hadley, but we see him taking bribes at this point. We know now he's getting Andy to cook the books and uh, launder the money. Yeah, do you think that's... I don't know. Again, I'm always looking for nuance and shades of gray here, but... This is not the movie for that, Stuart? I know it's not. And I again, I really like the idea of making this warden the bad guy. I think it plays the king. You know, this is this guy is as bad as the presidential hopeful in Dead Zone or something. You know, he just everyone else sees this good guy, but really he's just this Machiavellian. He's Nixon. Yeah, I agree. It works for a Stephen King story. It's how Stephen King likes to write his villains. And I think it works for this movie. But again, I ask in a movie that's asking me to think about how fair is our penal system. 
to not see any responsibility taken for the people that got themselves into jail is a bit irritating. And it was very irritating at the time. I, I think from a social justice perspective, you're looking at those abusing power much worse because they have the power to abuse. You look at a lot of these people in prison, they're, they're lower income, they, they have circumstances and disadvantages that may direct them a certain way that more privileged people don't. So again, that you could definitely read them as being the worst. Of course, this prison's mostly white, so I don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And again, is that why we're supposed to think of them as innocent? Again, I thought racial politics aside, that was another thing that was irritating me. I'm like, oh, we trust Tim Robbins because he's the innocent white guy. And I just, I don't know. It just, the deck was stacked. You can agree with me, right? I'm not saying that that's necessarily a bad thing now, but you can agree that if you looked at this movie, it is completely artificial. It is Hollywood created. Of course. Yeah, it's definitely dated. I, I think, again, if this was made now, it would be a different film. If it was dated, it's dated 1936, Jacob. Even in the cynical 90s, this would not have played as realistic, and I don't think it's trying to. But by setting it in the past, they could have updated this. They could have had it end in, you know, 1994, but they keep it in the past because we, we have nostalgia for the past, and it allows us to think of a more innocent time in the past. It, it's all part of the machinations here. We're, again, we're being heavily manipulated to think a certain way about the people in this institution. And while I, I allow myself in this viewing to go with that and enjoy it as a parable, I chafe at what it's trying to say about prisons in general. Yeah, I don't think you could take it too far with in that direction, Stuart. I'll agree with you there. Yeah, I think, though, there's bad people running prisons. There's bad people sure, in prisons. Yeah. There's innocent people in prisons. There's good people running prisons. Here in this story, we have a couple of really bad apples running the prison. I don't think that they even set out as every guard is bad. They focus on the warden Hadley. And some of the others, I mean, there's the one who even tries to shake Tim Robbins' hand for a brief moment, you know? I don't think that they're all primeval. I don't think all of the prisoners are good, although admittedly the only bad ones we see are pretty much the rapists. I mean, what, what solidifies Hadley and the Warden as being like the devil, if this is a Christ metaphor, is when Tommy shows up. Mm-hmm. Tommy, played by Gil Bellows. It took me like... I almost couldn't watch this movie for 10 minutes because I'm like, who the hell is that guy? How do I know that guy? He is Billy from Ally McBeal and I watched that show religiously and I guess he got that job based on this. That show started in 97, but yeah, I, I know this actor well from that. I knew that he had been in TV. I didn't know him, but I do feel like he really brings an energy. This movie is long. I'm going to just put it out there, 90 minutes into this movie with 55 more minutes to go. Thank God for Tommy because he's rock and roll incarnate. He comes in with the sideburns, talking trash. He's the greaser. He's the king character. Yeah. Usually the king greasers are hugely evil, though. Oh, that's right. He Greasers picked on King, didn't they? Yeah. They did. But not this guy. I mean, you know, he's a bad criminal. I, I do like the way it gets characterized. Is yes. <laughs> essentially, you're just not very good at this because you've been bouncing in and out of prisons on these, you know, silly breaking and entering charges. He's just, he ought to be home with his new daughter and his wife, and he just can't get it together Partly because, well, he doesn't have a high school degree and Tim Robbins has a few extra hours in the day. He can tutor him <laughs> on that as well. And I think that that is a good thing. I mean, you laugh at him having the extra hours in the day. 
But I love that this character, Andy, he's not just about himself. He's going to help this guy learn to read and help him better himself. It's it's what makes you love his character. When's he ever about himself? He's never, I mean, he's selfless. I mean, that's the thing. I mean, this is a character that never thinks about himself. I mean, he, he is Christ. I mean, I, I think that is intentional. We'll later see him even strike that pose when he gets out. I mean, this is Jesus Christ in a prison helping the lepers. And yes, it just so happens Tommy shared a cell with the guy who really killed the golf pro and Andy's wife, and he's going to spill the beans. And here's the one, and it goes back to King, but my one question. So at this point, Andy's been in prison for 17 years, give or take, and he's been tunneling for 16 years, give or take. And he goes to the warden and says, hey, I need to be retried. Don't you think if he was actually going to be retried and they moved him out, say he got released, they'd open that up and see this big fucking hole and be like, wait a second, you may not have broken that law. (laughs) (laughs) Well, again, here's the problem with Andy Dufresne, where he may be a little autistic, like super smart geologist, accountant, banker, whatever. Go to a lawyer first. Don't go to the warden who you know is corrupt. Like you're cooking his books. Just contact a lawyer. Maybe you can do that in 1965, but that would seem the right route to go. It certainly would have been the smarter one, but again, this character has never helped himself in the legal capacity we saw him in his own trial and he was <laughs> his worst enemy on the stand but i really like this because typically when something like this is introduced it means we're going back to the courts and it will be about finding this guy and proving innocence in courts and and getting that guy free that is exactly how you think that andy is going to to get out of this the, this is the happy ending we finally understand it to have it taken away from us to be given so much hope and then yanked away really does mirror the feeling of all these broken institutionalized people. That Tommy blows in here with the magic to get Andy off and the warden doesn't like that so he has him assassinated is just, it's a powerful moment. And this is not from King's story either. In that one, Tommy was just sent off to another prison. Here, Darabont really really wanted this warden to be seen as the most contemptuous and evil of characters. So yeah, he has Hadley kill this guy. And this is the one scene. You've complained about a lot of scenes, Stuart. This is the one scene where he takes out Tommy and gives him a cigarette and says, would you swear to this? I thought so. And then Tommy gets shot. I felt that was too telegraphed. I'm like, you got to see it coming. He's being given the cigarette. He's out there at night. Everything's a little bit off kilter. Mm -hmm. I mean, he did just get his GED, though. He's not the smartest. Yeah, we know it's coming, but I don't think, I don't know. This movie, sometimes really, I don't know what we're supposed to know. Again, is this the first time we're supposed to even think that Andy was innocent? Uh, It's certainly the first time that the inmates have actually believed that he might have been innocent. But I don't know what this movie expected me to know because I read the short story so close. I knew what these outcomes were. But yeah, you know that this guy's going to get it. And I do feel like that's okay. I mean, tragedy is seeing an outcome and not being able to prevent it. You know, it's we know it's going to go bad. We wish it wouldn't, but it, it does go bad. And I still think it's very powerful for that. And I think it should completely destroy Andy. This should be the final stone, whatever you want to compare it to, the thing that just breaks him down and he submits his will to the prison and gives up on the idea of digging out. Except, I think he's already done, right? 
He goes in the hole already having had this tunnel dug maybe for years. Maybe he was here all of this time just because he liked hanging out with the guys and wanted to make them better. Or, as we'll find out when we see the escape, is he also secretly a meteorologist and he had to wait for a storm? (laughs) (laughs) There is that. Or, again, it's worth asking. I know you don't like this theory, Arnie, but maybe he does not want to leave Red. He's certainly going to go to a whole lot of trouble after he escapes to make sure that Red can find him. Yeah, I think that they kind of go into that, that, and certainly King does, that Andy was somewhat institutionalized. He was afraid to leave. He'd had the whole, most of the way done, if not all the way done, but it took this to get him out. And in the movie version, yeah, he does two months in the hole. They're really lucky they didn't just decide to put somebody in that cell in two months who didn't like Raquel Welch. Yeah, it could have been discovered in a million different ways. But you know what? That's one thing about this movie that I like. I like the fact that it's this this ongoing disguise. It would have been weird if it was still Rita Hayworth. But because he's kept it contemporary, I think he's kept the, the ruse going. And I like the fact that he gets away with it. Who wouldn't enjoy the fact that once he gets out of the hole, he has a way of getting revenge? All right, yeah, you killed the guy that can get me off legitimately but I could always get out of here and I'm going to do it tonight. And I remember when I first saw this, because he has this big speech with Red, you know, talking about being institutionalized, a lot of platitudes, and then tells him about, you know, this place in Mexico and this rock that he should look for if he ever gets out. And then you find out he has this rope in his cell. I remember when I first saw this, I'm like, there's no way he's going to hang himself, but why would he have a rope? Why did he get that rope? Yeah, again, I feel like... Some of these manipulations, if we're supposed to have thought that he was going to kill himself, we know that Red thinks he's going to kill himself. But if the audience is also supposed to be having that fear, that wouldn't be working. We don't know what he's up to, but we know that it's got to be some kind of revenge, that it doesn't feel like he is going to kill himself. No, they're trying to sell the suicide thing, though. And I think I watched this with Marjorie this time. She'd never seen this movie. And she was convinced he was going to kill himself. I mean, we saw Brooks do it. We see him with the rope. She didn't think he was going out for any kind of revenge. He does not seem the kind who's going to go death wish in the final act of this film. (laughs) And she didn't think there was an escape. It's not telegraphed enough. She thought he was going to kill himself and he'd be the martyr. And maybe then there'd be a prison uprising or something. Now, that would have surprised me. Let me put it that way. The way that I felt like Darabound is directing these scenes... I knew he was up to something. If a different director had handled this, I would have believed the character was ready to kill himself because he had been so broken by the system. But the way that they were cutting and all the manipulations of it, it felt like he was up to something else. And he was. It's worth pointing out. We will find out after the fact. First, it's presented like a magic trick. It's the next morning. Red is shocked as everyone that the cell is empty. It takes him a little while to figure out that the cupcake on the wall is the secret exit. And I remember being blown away when I first saw this in theaters. Like, when you get that reveal, the warden's throwing those chess pieces around and, you know, asking the poster, hey, do you know where he went and throws it? And you hear that echo as the piece rolls down that tunnel. And, like, I remember just being blown away. I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I love that reveal. Mm -hmm. It is done so well. The sound design there, just the plinks and the echo 
windows and everything. Not sure if that's exactly believable given how long the tunnel is. That was one hell of a throw, but yeah, I I do like that. This is Stephen King's one complaint, by the way. He feels the tunnel's too round and calls it a wily coyote tunnel. I get claustrophobic watching Andy crawl through that thing. That is a tight fit. I love the music and narration going on during this too. I love when it's finally being played back and we get to see Tim Robbins doing this as Andy. Just the way the lightning is going, the way he has to time smashing the sewage pipe with the lightning, all of it. It's really just visually stimulating. And it is cathartic after seeing everything that's happened to him, after seeing him in the hole for two months, to get out, to get free, to know the system didn't break him the way it broke Brooks. He was not going to stay in. He would not be institutionalized. He wouldn't be their pet accountant. Man, it's... It is uplifting. I can't help but go along with it. Cynical though I may be, this one's got me. And I don't want to be someone that takes away people's hope. If people are being inspired by that, that's great. I'm only here to talk about why it didn't work for me. And why it didn't work for me is I didn't believe that this character was there. You know, I I didn't believe that he couldn't escape, I guess is the way that I felt about it. That it was more about Red. It was more that I wasn't sure what this all meant for Red. You're going to get another like 45 minutes to find out. Oh my God. And that was really, I mean, I was struggling with this movie throughout it. 45 minutes is 22, but Jacob, I think you're just... It feels long. You're you're just suffering in (laughs) slow-mo. It does. I mean, where I finally broke with this movie, my breaking point was, I'm like, okay, the guy got out and everyone, you know, happy ending. There it is. We can wrap it up with one more monologue about what it means for Red, the end of the movie. But no, 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 no. There has to be like some kind of Return of the King, 20 different endings. Choose your own (laughs) ending. I can't make an ending, so why don't you pick one of 30? Here's the thing. I like, I've complained a lot about the voiceover. I like it at this point. It, you know, it reminds me of a mystery film where you find out, you know, how this thing has been resolved. You know, it reminds me of Tim Curry and Clue going through <laughs> the resolution for all the murders here when you get to have Morgan Freeman talk about Andy's escape. I, I like that. But yeah, if we could just get Red, maybe he gets out on parole. He gives a great little speech. And then we see him show up in Mexico or something. I'm good with that ending. Just cut it. Why does he have to get out? Why does that have to happen at all? Why do we have to go down that road? Why can't the story of this man escaping mean something in and of itself to Red? I think they've spent so much time talking about being institutionalized. You have to address that with Red. I guess you're right. You're right. I feel like you got that whole Brooks sidebar. If you're going to have that, you got to address it with Red now. I guess I'm just, I can't deal with the problem of there has to be 20 more minutes of movie. The counter to that is, if you didn't have this with Red, you could have skipped all that stuff with Brooks. Brooks is only there for this stuff. But yes, this movie is Red's story. King calls it out. He's like, Red wasn't telling the story of Andy. Red was telling the story of Red. And you need this ending for that to bear fruit. And yes, hope in prison is hope to get out of prison and to have a meaningful life and that despite whatever you've done wrong or whatever has happened to you, that you're able to still lead a happy, hopeful life. There's no hope in prison. You can only try to feel normal for a few minutes at a time because you have a beer or hear an opera. That's 
what keeps your hope alive for getting the hell out because you're still in a place with a lot of anal rape and beatdowns and murderers just because one warden got caught and killed himself doesn't mean the next warden isn't going to be all shiny happy flower child i mean you're not wrong i can understand i answer my own question i know why we want to see red escape is because we like red and red deserves it and by god you know we want what he is justly deserved but i guess what i'm saying is i just can't stand the next 20 minutes and how it just goes on and on and on and it ruins its best moments you know he he winds up going to this very same flat that brooks did and we see that line and you know he goes to the same grocery store and has to ask whether he's going to use the bathroom that's all you needed to do can i use the bathroom but no then he's got a voiceover and say i've been asking people <laughs> so long in case you missed it let me understand underline it three more times that is a problem that we've already complained about with the voiceover i do wonder if part of the problem is is that you watch this and you think that andy dufresne is the protagonist and this is his story and then all of a sudden at the last minute just like this magic trick of escaping prison it becomes this trick where it's red story all of a sudden and we didn't know we were waiting to get a resolution for him as well why did we just spend all this time with andy then yeah i never was that concerned about andy oddly enough because he never transposed his real and he never really has an emotional moment he is shut down even at the end he has like one scene where he's kind of like oh i pushed my wife away but other than that i don't really see that being in prison he's learned anything he knew exactly the same thing going in that he did coming out so he is just not that interesting as someone that is going to be redeemed I think Red is the character we want to see redeemed, but I'm ready for this movie to be over. And that is really the bind of this of this last half hour, is that we watched the wrong character break out. I'll agree only insofar as to say the end goes on a little bit too long. I'd say you could shave a few minutes out of there, specifically when he's wearing his best suit to go dig in fields. I, Okay, and when he's looking at guns, but he's really looking at compasses and things like that. Again, with the harmonica score so that we all remember the music and staying alive. I do have a question about Andy, though. How did he keep his suit so clean? He slammed through half a mile of shit. He has a bag that he put it in. Yeah, he tied a bag that was really tight and tied it to his ankle. <laughs> okay, it was to his ankle because I was looking for it and I, I could not see it. He was dragging it behind him. Oh, yes. It's very visible in the scene where he's climbing down the wall. Oh, you're right. You're right. You're right. I can see it now. Okay. But, you know, he, even not that I wanted to see that, but even when he came out of the pipe, he looked pretty clean for someone that had just gone through what he had gone through. But again, I like the metaphor. You got to crawl through 500 yards of shit to come out with hope. You know, <laughs> there's something about that that's just so true. Yeah. And I do think, again, looking at this in its best light as a parable about any whatever your circumstance may be. All these forces holding you down, watching people triumph over that through persistence, just by not allowing all the naysayers to beat them down and be able to last because they were able to spend 19 years saying, I will survive, is always a powerful message. But I don't feel like this climax gets the best of that message across because it's overkill. I like it in Frank Darabont's ending. Now, there's one scene that he was forced to put on by the studio. In his ending, it would have ended where King's story does, with Red on the bus saying, I hope. Yes! Oh, okay. Yes! 
Because here, here is my question. Yeah, we're going to get this scene in Mexico. How long has it been between the escape and Red getting parole and finally going down there? Because Andy's going to open a hotel and have a boat. That dude's looking like Robin Caruso, like, on this beat-up boat, like, trying to sand it down. I don't know what he's been doing this whole time. Well, it took him a while to get to Mexico. I take it as it's been. He might have been out 18 months. And the fact that he has a boat, even if it's one that needs a little fixing up, he found that boat somewhere. <laughs> you know, he's a patient man. He's in no hurry. He'll eventually build his hotel with his own two hands. Maybe he didn't know how to get the wood and he needed somebody who could get things. But <laughs> yeah, this was all added in. And Darabont says, and I agree, he did it the best he could. At least there's no cheesy dialogue. It's a completely silent scene. We just see them hugging and rejoicing that they're going to build a hotel together there in Mexico. But I would have preferred it to end with Morgan Freeman on a bus saying, I hope, and then credits roll. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I really, that was where I started throwing rocks at the screen the first time I saw it. When, <laughs> when they had to show us the beach and that he actually did find them, that we could leave absolutely no ambiguity. Just, oh, what a pisser. So I guess it comes down to a simple choice, really. Get busy recommending or get busy not recommending. Jacob. Stuart, I, I know what it's like to have these kind of reactions to films. Like, you said American Beauty. I agree with you. I hate that movie. Black Swan, Slumdog Millionaire, I think is one of the worst movies I've ever seen. So I, I get what it's like to hate something that is beloved by so many people. But I also get what it's like to see a film age or actually see myself age and react differently to a film. And I, I felt like I had that experience watching... Shawshank Redemption this time and like scratching my head why is this the number one film on IMDB like there was one time where I thought Braveheart was like the best movie ever and, and I dropped that opinion even before Mel Gibson went crazy like <laughs> things do change but I, I watched this as like a 17 year old and yeah the people in charge of the system are evil the warden the guards you want gotta revolt against them you gotta have a hope to break through I think that speaks to like a rebellious teenager or young adult like trying to make their way in the world you got to find that hope even though the world's trying to keep you down it's a very populist film and i don't think that's necessarily bad i think there's ways this could be improved like i said i'd love to see a non-narrated version of this film but you know watching this i now yeah it, it works as a parable for me you know people say oh society is more and more secular well Here's a little piece of a secular Bible for you. Here's a little nice story about hope with this messianic figure that comes to a prison. You're not going to get a whole lot of in-depth discussion about how do we really rehabilitate our prisoners. It drops little things here and there, but I still think this is a pretty decent film. Like, it, it, it's an uplifting film, and I don't want to trash a film just because it's uplifting. I like uplifting films, especially when they're done very well. This one, again, the sap drips a little hard at times, but it still works. And so, yeah, this is still a recommend for me. Stuart. You know what? I agree. I'm going to let this movie out of movie jail. Darabout can go free after 20 years of saying this is my least favorite movie of all time. I can admit it's actually pretty good. It's a pretty well-constructed, though hopelessly corny, fable. And that is the key word there. It is a fable. It is far less about a prison system than it is about perseverance. And when you take that attitude, I do find that the movie opens up in ways that it was closed in an insular, fanciful way when I experienced it as a kid. 
When I saw this movie in my early 20s, I was a cynical film student, and this was the opposite of cool. This was the opposite of what I wanted from filmmakers, where where we had over-manipulation, heavy-handed music, just all of it insisting that you must feel this one certain way. You know what? I let it go. I mean, I do believe that King's story is better than this movie. And I do believe there's a better version of this movie that could be made. But given all of that, and again, given the fact that I have lived for years believing that this movie was just criminally overrated, I'm just no longer saying that corniness is a capital offense. It's just not worth killing this movie and the good things about this movie to say it's a red arrow. It's a mild green arrow, the mildest, but I will recognize that if you enjoy a nice parable about hope, this is one to see. You're granting it parole. I will. It's, you, can, you may go. Now, I don't know about Green Mile. I haven't seen that one. <laughs> I got a bad feeling when we return to that one. I, yeah. I've only seen it once in theaters, and I remember going, Me too. This ain't Shawshank. And now I think I'd have an even harsher opinion. I don't know. We'll get to it someday. But for now, looking back in 1994, what was it about that year that made it a time for sap? I mean, we had this, we had Forrest Gump. And I think many of the criticisms you could say about Forrest Gump, you could say about this movie. I, I agree. When I hear what you say about this movie, I think about Forrest Gump. And you know what? I liked Forrest Gump a lot when I saw it in theaters. And then I had some years where I had a huge backlash against that film. And somebody would mention it to me, and I would turn red and go irate and be like, that sappy piece of shit, Jenny, you know, bullshit, <laughs> can't stand this fucking movie. And then I've come around, I'm like, you know, yeah. I love what you said, Jacob, that the sap drips a little hard. I think this movie and Forrest Gump, it's dripping hard, but you can just get so enveloped in it and sticked with it. And it's rare that I can actually go with a movie like this and not just roll my eyes and get ice strain and cross my arms and say, this just is Pollyanna bullshit. But there's something about this movie, and I'm going to give it to Freeman and the performances and the camera work and the gorgeous, gorgeous score, I don't care what Stewart says, <laughs> that make this work. With Forrest Gump, I think it's a lot the music as well. I just get transported into this fairy tale land of a prison. If we ever go to prison, may it be this friendly. <laughs> Admittedly, I'd rather go to this one than Oz. <laughs> so... It's a strong recommend from me, and my only question is, is it my favorite King movie we've done? Does it surpass The Shining? No. No. Mmm. <laughs> no. A photo finish, too close to call. It's up there. Wow, okay. I, I think it might be on par with Cat's Eye for me. Ooh, okay, that's a little low. <laughs> Hey, I'm coming along. Who knows? Maybe in 20 more years, it'll be my favorite movie, and I'll rate it number one in, in IMDb. <laughs> well, you came along and said you'd rather have Children of the Corn than this at the beginning. They're making another one of those, so maybe after you have to revisit the cornfield, you might push this one up higher still. <laughs> like I said, there's some movies you dislike because they're poorly made, and we see a lot of those. You know, the editing's bad, we, the story's confusing. For me, this movie it was always what it was selling. I felt like I was being sold a bad bag of goods you have to just accept what you're buying 
I'm not buying a prison movie that looks at the complications of incarceration. I'm buying a fable. And as such, that I can buy. Yeah, and I think this is a great way to start different seasons. These are going to be three of the least horrific King films we can do. Because this week, we got to talk fables in prison. Next week, Nazis with Brian Singer. That's horrific, isn't it? Nazis. You know what? That was my favorite story in the Different Seasons book. When I read it, I read all four, and that was the one, when I read it, I couldn't wait, I can't wait to see the movie next week, because I was so impressed with what was on the page. I'm biting my tongue until I get to the books and nachos review for what I felt on that short story, but I'll disagree with that. <laughs> and I saw that movie in theaters opening weekend too, and I'm looking forward to the conversation. <laughs> and if you enjoyed this show, please consider heading to iTunes and leaving us a five-star review and putting a couple comments in there about what you like about the show. It really means a lot to us to see that you enjoy the show and it helps spread the word to new listeners that, hey, this is a show worth checking out. So you can find the link to our iTunes listing from our homepage, nowplayingpodcast.com. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, I can't take care of you no more, Jake. You go on now, you're free. Boy, the time for discussion is over. This is the way it is. You know this means we're through, don't you? You won't be seeing me around here anymore. No. I suppose I won't. This is the end. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing, and we hope you've enjoyed the show. Yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. I mean, I learned my lesson. I can honestly say it, and I'm a changed man. Now that you've heard the movie review, head to booksandnachos.com to hear Arnie's reviews and analysis of Stephen King's original short stories and novels. You played it beautifully, boy. I knew you would. And come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear our reviews of other Stephen King movies, such as Carrie, The Shining, Children of the Corn, Cujo, and dozens more in our archive section. Nothing left but all the time in the world to think about it. Also on our site, hear reviews of other films such as Maniac, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Riddick, Friday the 13th, The Avengers films, Star Trek, and more. Find hundreds of movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com and come back each week for another new movie review. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. Would be a good fight, though. Also at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. You're gonna be a great writer someday, Gordy. You might even write about us guys if you ever get hard up for material. While at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss this review with other listeners. Hey, we all need friends in here. I could be a friend to you. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. There are places in the world that aren't made out of stone, that there's, a, there's something inside they can't touch. Hope. 
You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Sorry, Vern. I guess a more experienced shopper could have gotten more for your seven cents. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. And for the briefest of moments, every last man at Shawshank felt free. Now Playing's Different Seasons series is edited by Heath and Arnie. Nothing stops. Nothing. You will do the hardest time there is. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Shut up! I don't shut up. Shut up, I I grow up. And when I look at you, I throw up. The film discussed in this podcast is the property of its respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not when the master of the house cometh. Mark 1335. Always like that one. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. You've no right to come here and say these lies about me. Now playing as a Venganza Media production, copyright 2016, all rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Well, guys, I, I better get home before my mom puts me on Temo's wanted list. We'll see ya. Not if I see you first. And this is an important idea to get across about being institutionalized. When I first saw this film, being institutionalized meant your mom wouldn't get you a Pepsi from the Suicidal Tendencies song. You know, I I didn't (laughs) get what it meant. That went over my head. I was like, okay. (laughs) Jesus! So, Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And until next week, I can't take care of you no more, Jake. You go on now. You're free. You're talking about the bird, not Jacob, right? Yes. I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, did you just fire Jacob? <laughs> <laughs> Felt the best way to do it was on air. <laughs> wow. We're very sensitive. Yeah, we call him Warden Arnie. <laughs> Jesus! Let's get out of here! Come on! <laughs>